Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Retro Conflict Podcast, the RetconCast. I'm your host, Phil, and for this episode, we had a great interview. So excited to have a chance to sit down and talk with Austin Bay. Uh, if you don't know who Austin Bay is, the list of this guy's accomplishments is crazy, but I, I want to just try to summarize a little bit about him. So first off, he designed the game Arabian Nightmare, which I've been replaying on the blog as a way to look back at the invasion of Kuwait and Desert Shield and Desert Storm as we come up on the 30-year anniversary. Well, now we're past the 30-year anniversary of that. But Austin is also an author. Uh, his most recent book is Cocktails from Hell, which is a really interesting look at the way politics and warfare sort of combined and the different types of warfare there are. Uh, I have read the introduction to it. I didn't get a chance to get too far into it before we did the podcast, but I like where I am so far. And so if you're interested in checking that out, I'm going to put a link to that book in the show notes when I post this podcast to the blog. I'll also link to some of the other things that Austin does because, I mean, it's a lot. He's he's a columnist. He's got uh, he, he contributes to strategy page. Um, so he's a busy guy and he wears a lot of hats, but he was kind enough to take some time to talk to me about what I was doing with Arabian Nightmare. And we actually ended up talking a lot just about the history of the Gulf War and the way that politics and warfare are combined, both in the game Arabian Nightmare uh, and in the real world in the game, what we see in the real world and how we try to simulate the interaction in games. Uh, but he's just incredibly gracious with his time. And so this is a longer interview. And so I'm not going to spend too much time prattling on uh, right here. I want to get right to the good stuff of me and him talking about this stuff. But again, I just want to let you guys know, if you're interested in the things that Austin has to say, and I think you will be, um, I'm going to put that big link list on the on the uh, blog when I post this. And so you can check out all of his stuff. All right. Let's not waste any more time. Let's go straight to the interview. All right. I'm, I'm so pleased right now to be joined uh, by Colonel Austin Bay, Colonel, Doctor, all that good stuff. I mean, Austin, you are a man of many hats, and uh, I really appreciate you taking some time out to uh, talk to me on this podcast. Phil, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be with you. I'm, I'm eager to get a chance to speak with you about uh, not only the Arabian Nightmare a war game, but some of the concepts that were uh, utilized in the uh, game design that I think have uh, utility in, in the 21st century. Oh, absolutely. I cannot wait. Well, let, you know, let's get right into it. And I kind of wondered, I got to be honest, I wondered exactly how I wanted to start this interview. I wasn't really sure. And then it just sort of hit me. With the way that we're doing so many things remotely today, I have to ask you, this game, the way you designed it, it was one of the first to have so much extensive like email rules testing and involvement and so I, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just sort of going over um, exactly how this game was put together uh, when you guys did it well there, 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 there are several pieces in play here that if you looked at them as a jigsaw puzzle they wouldn't fit but if you look at them as what happens between August 2nd 1990 when Saddam invades Kuwait and uh, what happens concerning various conversations and uh, a certain column I wrote for the Houston Chronicle uh, that I actually wrote on August 2nd, and I think it was published on August 3rd. I've got a copy of it somewhere. And conversations that Jim Dunnigan and I had about the 10th or 11th of August, you can see uh, how it gelled. Uh, the, the, the column was um, 
the result of a, of a, of a conversation with uh, one of the editorial page editors of the Chronicle calling me and asking me to write something about uh, the Iraqi invasion uh, of Kuwait, which I did, uh, under a very tight timeline. And I, I, I laid out some of the uh, strategic issues on it. And a week, 10 days later, when it was clear that uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia were forming a coalition to uh, respond to Saddam Hussein's, and I'm, I guess I'm personalizing it, but the Iraqi dictator had sent his elite the Republican Guard Corps uh, into Kuwait and invaded it. It was uh, an act that had economic, political, global significance, but also, as, as you read several things that I've written, including a, a recent retrospective column on Desert Shield 30 years later, Saddam, it was, uh, there was a certain degree of, a certain degree, a huge degree of megalomania on his part because he was going to be a world leader. And uh, oil, at least the ability to control the price of oil, was a significant factor, huge factor. And plus the ability to threaten Gulf Arab, other Gulf Arab uh, countries, uh, were uh, going to propel him to, uh, the, uh, el among the elite, this was his version of uh, world leaders. So, uh, Jim Dunnigan, James F. Dunnigan, the uh, really the, the man who not only revived war games, but uh, arguably, this is a huge, huge thing to say, but it's, it's very arguable he did, um, recreated the modern board war game and really uh, energized wargaming again uh, within uh, the United States. And I say that because uh, both the uh, CIA and the Office of the Secretary of Defense in uh, the mid to late 1970s had uh, Jim come and uh, talk to them about techniques that he was using with uh, Simulations Publications Incorporated, SBI, his wargaming, commercial wargaming company in New York, to come and talk to them about the techniques he was using uh, it, it, with the uh, commercial games he was designing. All right. Now, I, I had worked with Jim when I was uh, you know, living in New York from 79 to uh, 87 on, uh, on several different projects. I wrote some articles for, uh, uh, for strategy and tactics and uh, collaborated on a couple of uh, other projects. So uh, Jim had read, I sent him a copy of the uh, Houston Chronicle editorial I wrote, and I'm going to say sometime between the 12th, 10th, or maybe 10th and 15th of August, he calls me on the phone and he says, Austin, let's do a war game on the uh, Allied, ultimately it becomes coalition, but uh, as I recall, Jim said, uh, Allied response uh, to... Uh, uh, to the Iraqi invasion. And he says, you do it, and I'll develop it. And I said, okay, that sounds like, that sounds great. Uh, I'd, I'd love to do that. 
Um, and he says, you know, I said, what do you want me to do? He says, take a look at a game I did a few years ago for strategy and tactics called Oil War, which was a simple little game, had a very simple little map, and it, and, and it dealt with basically strikes on Saudi Arabian uh, oil complexes. And I said, all right, Jim, that's a, that's a good starting point. Let me think about it. And I spent about the ex, eight, next eight or nine days sitting down saying, wait a minute, I, I've got, this is an opportunity to really show what you can do with games. Now, Phil, here's another component of this. Uh, from 1989 to 1993, I was a special consultant in strategic wargaming in the Office of Secretary of Defense as Dr. Bay in the the Office of Net Assessments, working for uh, Andrew Marshall. Uh, and and uh, uh, so I had real credibility in large-scale games. I understood how they worked. I had done design work uh, on this, and I thought, listen, let's just go all out. So I, first off, laid out a, what I considered to be uh, a term coalition had already begun to appear in the press because Desert Shield, Operation Desert Shield, the defense of Saudi Arabia, actually kicked off on August 9th. So a coalition military response, uh, I, all I did was look at the maps, and I looked at the maps that not only I had of uh, the Arabian Peninsula and Iraq, but the primitive ones that you could find on the, what was the internet, not quite the World Wide Web, of 1990. And I said, listen, this is going to be a repeat of North Africa, except we're going south to north instead of east to west, meaning or if, if, if you were the Germans, you were going west to east, sweeping around in the desert to outflank the British, if you were the Germans, or the British, if you were going to outflank the Germans, you were going east to west, primarily fighting in Libya. And I, I looked at this and I said, look, you, this is tank country. Now, I'm an armor officer. I did that. Uh, for, for a while and still managed to uh, be a reserve armor officer and know something about tanks and mechanized warfare. I looked at the map and said, if a coalition can get enough uh, heavy mechanized forces in this, uh, knowing how unreliable Iraqi forces are, Kuwait's going to be liberated. Now, I'm picking that up from the Bush administration and the Saudi Arabian uh, government, which had said their goal was to liberate Kuwait. That had, was articulated early, and that's a very important point, Bill. That is a diplomatic, political, it's a political statement about what would shape this conflict. It was a political statement that said, how really that that formed the coalition from you, you want to talk about diverse groups showing up 
Syria ultimately sent humans. Egypt, not so weird that Egypt would participate. Not strange that Gutter and uh, other Gulf Arab and Bahrain would uh, participate, or Saudi Arabia. And not too odd that Great Britain would participate, here's the United States, uh, or France would show up, given the gravity of the situation and the fact that uh, Saddam could... Uh, uh, he, he, let, let, me, let me give you a couple of numbers here. Iraq and Kuwait, between them in 1990, had about 20%, that's the going figure, of proven world oil reserves. But the Saudis had more, and the Saudis were the real exporters, not just, and, and the uh, gutter, Bahrain, the UAE, uh, were uh, are not, uh, not midgets either. But Saddam has essentially put a dagger pointed at northeastern Al-Hassa, the northeastern uh, uh, province of Saudi Arabia, where the huge fields are, like the Gawar field. So, given the global interdependence, uh, economic interdependence, uh, Saddam thought he had uh, an economic uh, threat to all industrialized nations, particularly Western industrialized nations. Russia might be able to get by, but everybody else in his calculation relies on uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, but Gulf Arab nations for their energy supplies. Quick sidebar here for your listeners. <clears throat> the U.S. was only relying at the time of about 4 or 5% of its uh, uh, oil needs from the Persian Gulf at the time. So anybody who argues that it was an oil war on the U.S. behalf uh, uh, has got something they've got to prove, but it was a threat to economic stability in a, in a world that is economically interdependent and where what happens in Japan and in Western Europe matters and in Australia and Canada to the United States. You know, I think arguably Canada and the United States were, uh, were not rely, uh, relying on it, but there's an economic threat. There's also uh, a threat that anybody who is aware of what happens in 1939, that when you, uh, an imperialist aggressor just takes something, the world goes tilt. And that was 1939, I'm referring to Germany invading Poland. But uh, here is uh, Saddam in 1990, as the Cold War is winding down, he's going to take Kuwait. Now, I'm going to step back for a moment. This is something I was aware of because I had read it in the uh, uh, global uh, radio updates that uh, is, are, are produced uh, by, uh, actually by, by CIA, but they're in all, they were published and available in almost any library. 
and I, and I, and I, I didn't read it until uh, August after the invasion. But I was aware that this had occurred. Saddam, in February of, of 1990, had given a speech in Amman, Jordan, where he said that uh, the U.S. is fatigued, uh, you know, implying that Vietnam had run the United States down, that the United States was a weak giant, but with the demise of seeing that the Soviet Union doesn't officially dissolve until late 1991, but uh, the U.S. was going to be unchallenged for the next five years. Someone had to step up. Now, I cover this actually not only in a, in a book that Jim and I did in 92, From Shield to Storm, but in a, in a column I wrote uh, just this past week, a 30th uh, annual review of Operation Desert Steel, uh, Desert Shield, about, it's megalomaniacal. But Saddam was going to be a minor leaguer who was going to step up and challenge the United States. And the way to challenge the United States was to take Kuwait. I'm not, I do not know, I know President George H.W. Bush is no longer among, among us. I've never spoken to no members of his administration about this. But it was, there was some clarity in uh, the Bush administration about what was being done in terms not necessarily of challenging the United States, but challenging the uh, world economic order and also uh, the political order, at least as defined by borders. And that goes, again, goes back to, to uh, 1939. Remember, the Cold War is not yet over. That Saddam speech of, in Amman 1990 it's almost like he's aware that he knows it's over and, and the Soviet Union is all but dead as a challenger to the United States. So he's going to step up. All right, so I'm not saying, Phil, all of this is clear to me, but in the conversations that Jim and I had and Jim Donegan and I had and some emails we exchanged and thoughts on this, and some elaborations on that column that I wrote in the clutch on August 2nd for the Houston Chronicle is that, hey, here's an opportunity to look, uh, uh, to do some futuristic work and project uh, not only military outcome, but let's do the politics. And uh, I think, I still thank Jim for this. He says, you want to do the politics, go to it. And uh, I consider that political game, Phil, to be one of the most important aspects of it, even though the feedback I got from people who played the original Kuwait war game, which was published in December 1990 in Strategy and Tactics, saying, all this does is frustrate the military game. We can't fight. I'm, I'm being a little bit funny about it, but I got an email from a friend of mine who lives in Dallas who told, told me, Austin, I just watched a report on one of the local D Dallas or Fort Worth TV stations where a bunch of these, this war game club was playing your game, and they complained about it. <laughs> I, I, I can't verify that, Phil, other than I got the email, and I've since talked to this. This guy was a guy I went to high school with. And he and I have talked about it at least 15 times since. And he says, 
that's what I saw and that's what happened. Well, wait, guess what? That, that political game, which uh, was really finished and solidified um, certainly by the end of October of 1990. It was after the, uh, the uh, uh, Ted Koppel night, uh, Nightline show, when I had to final, finalize the rules, was really a game of diplomacy, politics, economic subterfuge, covert operations, media, what we might, information warfare, what we now call narrative warfare. And I, I use the term narrative warfare. I think that is a useful term. Read my latest book, Cocktails from Hell. I spent a lot of time talking about narrative warfare. Saddam was engaged in that because that was a way to stop the coalition buildup, and particularly try to attack the U.S. domestic will to defeat him. He was going after the United States. He had already had, he, he shaded this in his speech in Amman in 1990, that the United States was vulnerable. On Vietnam, uh, mass casualties, America will retreat. And boy, did he push that. Uh, and he... he he pushed it heavily, even after I finalized the rules. I thought, he's doing, he's, he's doing this. But then, my goodness, he'd already given us an indication that that's what he was going to do. So that, that game is where Saddam has a chance to win, because if you move to January 1991, and by the way, there's a scenario in the game that came out in... December of 1990, called the Beware the Ides of January. It is playing off of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, where the seer tells Caesar, Beware the Ides of March. And he's, he's going to get killed by Cassius and Brutus when he comes into the Senate. So, Beware the Ides of January. That would be uh, January 15th. Now, Desert Storm kicks off on January 17th, but that's close enough for for government work. Actually, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, uh, I thought that was a good title for a lot of reasons. In part, it was determined, I took that as a start date for this uh, coalition offensive because I happened to read. I happen, and this is, this is one of those things where you're just lucky. I did my two weeks uh, Army Reserve duty, active duty for training, uh, and the uh, Assistant Secretary of the Army for Research, Development, and Acquisition, where I was for about four years as Major Bay, uh, in both in uh, heavy vehicles and missiles, believe it or not, that's what my slot was, uh, in late, uh, late October. And I happened to read a book called War on Wheels, which was written by a Princeton graduate who uh, served with the Red Cross and British forces uh, in Iraq in 1917 and 1918. And he described the Shamals coming in and uh, what the Shamals, that's the uh, 
rain and, and, and sand that starts hitting in late January or fe uh, February. And you can't do every, he, he described both uh, uh, Commonwealth soldiers and Turks as being covered gray with, uh, 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 with mud. And I thought, okay. So I went and researched that in about a day. Uh, I was in Washington and I had an opportunity to look at it and I said, that's gonna put a, a, a pinch on uh, operations, especially air operations and especially on helicopters. I could be making this up, Phil, except I'm not. And so I, uh, I went in as a, January 15th, I better kick it off. So I kicked off on the 17th. Now, to get back to designing the game, that's where that, that, that was the origin of that particular, uh, particular scenario. But I, that was one of several scenarios that if you played the game out, there was one including 1994 when Saddam had a nuclear weapon. If Saddam had a nuclear weapon and you're on the border of Kuwait as you're building up your forces, guess what you are? You're sitting ducks for a weapon of mass destruction. Now, it's not that they weren't a sitting ducks for uh, a chemical attack. I know. Saddam got rid of his chemicals. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But the uh, uh, this is again. This is 1990, 1991. There, uh, there's a, a possibility of a, a weapon of mass destruction attack that would have. Uh, I don't know that it would have stopped it if it was chemical, but it was severely hampered. A coalition uh, counteroffensive to drive the Iraqis out of uh, out of Kuwait, but that 1994 scenario was there because it would have been possible if Saddam had waited and he had a nuke or uh, sufficient weapons of mass destruction that that would have presented a far different military technological situation than pertained in late 1990, early 1991. Now, why am I going to those details here? I mean, you can go back and look at the game and see that there were other scenarios uh, uh, as well. And you could also play with, with uh, political points and slow down or speed up uh, coalition uh, logistics, meaning you were feeding uh, troops, bringing troops into and soldiers as well as air units, and in, uh, the, uh, uh, also naval, uh, naval capabilities uh, uh, into, into the game. Uh, the, I, I did those because when the game had to be finalized by the end of November, early, uh, uh, in, excuse me, end of the October, early November, 1990, I had to project forward and say, this could be, and if nothing happens, if, if there's stasis, what could have happened if certain other key um, 
in the case of nukes, there's a there's a key example. If if, as a, if that had been possessed by uh, Saddam when he made his move on Kuwait, now just to backtrack this, there were probably real pressures. Not probably. I think real pressures as Saddam saw it, uh, and understand it is how he saw it that mattered within Iraq on making the move when they did because uh, they were under great economic pressure. Remember, they're still involved in a war with the Iranians. They, they had attacked Iran and had been locked in that, what was the original Persian Gulf War with the Iranians for almost a decade. And he, uh, taking Kuwait as an economic asset plus he thought political prestige, plus he thought an opportunity to threaten Saudi Arabia. And if you look at that speech that he gave in Amman, that is on megalomania. And I don't underestimate that. It sounds novelistic, but when you're dealing with dictators, there it is. Here's his chance to take on the United States. And he makes it clear the United States is his enemy. Now... This, can you bring all that into a game? That's what I tried to do, Phil. Well, and, and I got to, and oh, sorry, I don't mean to I'll cut. I'll leave it there. I, I, I've got a soliloquy. Go ahead and give me some feedback. No, you're, you're fine. And thank you. I mean, honestly, I could just sit back and, and listen to that because it's so interesting to hear the process that goes into designing this game. But it, you really hit on the point that I, and I'll say I learned from it what I discovered when I started playing the game and like we've talked about I, I combined the introductory rules with the political rules I quickly realized like you were saying the, the only chance that Saddam really has or the Iraqi player however you want to say it really has at making a go of this is by sort of using these political tricks and you sort of play this game with the political point system of taking hostages and then releasing them or doing things and then undoing them and it was just I've never played a war game like that, and I think it's really interesting that that one group in Dallas wasn't having it because, so honestly, I think my hands only pushed a counter on the board in the first couple of turns when the Iraqi forces drive out the Kuwaiti forces, and then in my final turn, but that was pretty short-lived because Iraq had a coup, and the game was over. I had a bad roll on it, and it was just such an interesting game, and you talked about this when we were you know talking beforehand about how... You really think that games like this, war games like this, need to have a political aspect. Why? I mean, why don't we see more war games that have these like tied-in political rules like this? All right. Go back and, and look at some games. Well, actually, uh, games that uh, Jim Dunnigan did, Richard Byrd was particularly good at, at this. And then there's a game that Al Nolte designed called Origins of World War II. It's totally lost and obscure, but they have real political aspects in them. Now, but the way Richard Berg would do it, he would have these uh, rules for this, and if this happens, you get penalized here or that. I'm, I'm not minimizing it. They were very, very clever the way he did it. Nofi's Origins of World War II is a political game where... Stalin, Hitler, FDR, uh, 
come on, forget all of it. I've actually got a copy of it someplace. Are, are trying to gain political points to set up for the war. And it's, uh, you know, there's the, 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 the dice rolls uh, make a difference, but you also have to think about political and strategic considerations in, in, in the game. So this, is, this, has, been, this has been done. And, and some commercial board games. I can guarantee you it is done constantly in games that I am aware of uh, conducted within the Department of Defense because I, or the, or the Army, there was a, uh, about a three-year period where I got to participate in some of the Army Chiefs of Staff annual war games at, at Carlisle Barracks, uh, either as a lieutenant colonel or a colonel. Uh, and uh, uh, one time I was on the white team, meaning I was part of the, uh, uh, and as, as I was there as a reservist, uh, as uh, uh, helping run the game, but twice, now, get this, you can't make this stuff up, except it actually happened. <clears throat> One of the uh, 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 colonels who was responsible for the game comes up to me, and you know, here I am. Yeah, I'm I'm actually working for uh, assigned to uh, work for uh, Army Training and Doctrine Command, which is responsible for the game. And he comes up to me and he says, "Austin, the." Um, the actor we had hired to portray a uh, anchor for World News Network, it was made up, isn't going to make it. Now, by the way, at the time, I was, uh, I'd, I'd been, for about a year, I had been a regular commentator, which means I'd done three or four uh, editorials or uh really commentaries for Morning Edition on National Public Radio. And uh, this particular, this colonel was aware of it, and so was the lieutenant general who was in charge of, uh, of TRADOC at the, at the time, was a, a deputy, he was a deputy charge of it. And, they, and, all right, Phil, I haven't told this story very many times. So, I... I, I came out, there were, this was the initial meeting, I, I, come out and talk to us. And there's the lieutenant general, two or three colonels, and they said, they said look, we want you to be the uh, substitute, and you're going to be the anchor. And I said, you guys are kidding. You've got me here trying to help you run against No. It's not going to work. We want to play media, and you can do it. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> That's basically what I, I was told. So I agreed to do it. Now, uh, and, and it was it, it was a good experiment. They had some uh, uh, a, a full up media team uh, from Fort Knox that the producer was a guy who had worked for uh, new, uh, several 
uh, uh, network TV stations in, in, the, in the Midwest, including one in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, as I recall. So we, we played it straight, and yes, I sat up there, and I played a combination of, of Dan Rather and Peter Jennings. And I was a jerk and an anti-American jerk to the, to, to the core. Now, why am I telling you this, Phil? The intent, because I, I, I talked to her, I said, look, I knew you guys were kind of going to do this. I can't believe you want me to do it. Austin, just do it. And I did it. And uh, I have had, I'd had TV experience, and I've had plenty of radio experience. And if we're going to sit there and do it, I'm going to drive it. It was a political game, Phil, that we, uh, that we did. And it utterly frustrated the blue team, which was the whole point of the game. Now, the blue team is the good guys. That's us. The red team, the red team, if you could imagine, it was kind of a, as I recall, a super Iran. <laughs> it, was all, it was made up. That's kind of unfair to, to say it. But the deal was is that the game that the, the point that Tredoc wanted out of this is watch what's going to be done to you media-wise. And I'm going to say that happens in 98 or 99. I, I, I have to, so I got, and that, look, the, the, the game only went on for about like four or five days. And it included, yes, we made, we made videos and I sat there and, and played, uh, played, uh, propagandists. I made up a lot of the stuff. They, I, I said, if you guys are going to make me do this, and, and of course you're paying me. They were paying me as Dr. Bay. I really wasn't there. I wasn't there as, uh, as uh, Lieutenant Colonel Colonel Bay. I think I'm a full Colonel. All right. But, uh, the deal is, is that, is that, uh, is that you're going to do this. I said, fine, go do it. You know, you, you go do it. So this is done. And there's an awareness of what it can do. Now, I think this is only the third or fourth time that I have told uh, somebody on a podcast or electronic media about that, about uh, uh, doing that in, in that war game. And it's, it really is almost funny, but I, can, I, I, I know why it was done. They had a, 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 a paid, you know, an actor and a, a group and didn't show up. They're under the gun, and I'm I'm there as a, a consultant on the game, and they know I can do it. So, man, did I do it? And and I know that. Uh, uh, but you see, the thing is, that's also after I did that political game. For uh, uh, for you know, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and uh, it, several of the guys uh, at, at Tradoc were aware of that game. So I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not saying that that that's the the root of it. No, I could see things that were being done in other uh, strategic level games of uh, done by the Department of Defense done by the army. I never played in a, in a Navy, in a Navy game, but I, the Navy had, and with, with its 
strategic games would include that as well. But it's the awareness of what uh, media can do is not something that the American military was ignorant of or aware of it. And if anything, one of the influences on me as a lieutenant on active duty in the 70s was hearing my senior officers telling me about <laughs> senior NCOs about how we were screwed over by the media in Vietnam. Now, that's, that's an angle, but I spent you know, almost four and a half, five years in the, in the, in the 70s with my, um, the senior NCOs that I worked with and uh, my commanding officers who were all Vietnam vets. And that was a view they had. They said, you've you got to pay attention to it. You don't, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in huge trouble. Uh, if anything, they were very, um, I, I can't say, I would say in the long run sobered by it, but I, I, I will say in, in 76, 77, they were still angry about it. Well, and that, would, that would make sense. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, pretty course, close. Of course you would expect it. But I, that is something that I know fed into what I did in, in 1990. Austin, I want to ask you, and I, I mentioned this to you, so I'm a, a pre-service teacher. Now, I'm uh, going to be dealing with middle school math students, so this question is going to be a little different because I think the ages of the students and the uh, intellectual uh, capabilities of the students that you're dealing with were a little different. But you're a teacher. You, you've taught at the University of Texas. You've got an extensive educational background as well and your doctorate. And I, I wondered if you might just talk a little bit about the role you see for war games at any um, age for as an educational tool. Um, I know, again, like I say, most of yours is going to be coming from the college, but I, I'd love to hear if you, like, how early do you think you can start sneaking war games in as a way to sort of teach social sciences? Uh, and of course, the there's so much math in it, and that, that's my content area, so that's why I like it. I, I'm going to answer this question backwards, Phil, because it's very good. What I would do in this uh, junior level honors seminar I taught for the Plan 2 program at the University of Texas. did it for about 15 years. I'm no longer on the, an adjunct prof there, but was, I, I'd use, a, uh, actually I used one of Jim Dunnigan's war games called Bulge. It's a, a rather simple, except it's not simple, it's elegant to use the correct word for it, uh, game uh, based on the Battle of the Bulge. And that was something that uh, students had at least heard of. And it, it was a way to, to, to bring to bear how one could look at uh, geography, and more than geography, terrain, terrain effects, weather, equipment, Troops, not just troop quality, troop quality, troop training, but tradition. Also, doctrine. To some degree, you can see a difference between German and American doctrine in the game. And leadership, not so much, but in also differential 
between uh, types of units. You get a leg infantry unit in a town like Trois Points, three bridges, and and bulge like the 82nd Airborne Division. And it's very difficult even for an SS Panzer unit to push it out. It's almost impossible. When you start looking at the way that the combat results table and the quote-unquote shifts uh, to account for all these factors were there. And I said, look, these are quantitative uh, simulations. This is a simulation. But look at the analysis that goes into this. And I would use one rule in there in particular, which was a bridge interdiction rule, that if an American unit was within three hexes, and the, you know, they're hexagons, six-sided, those strategy and tactics developed a, the hexagon really as a, as a unit for, for board war games. It, it's better than a square. And, but it's as a, as a to show uh, orientation, facing, and the like. But if you were within, if a bridge was within three hexes of an American unit, it was interdicted. What did that indicate? It indicated the extraordinary capabilities of American artillery. Well, wait a minute, Doctor Bay. What are you talking about? The United States, in a, actually, it was some captains and majors who were in Army artillery, uh, uh, began developing artillery tactics in the 1920s and 1930s on how to uh, bring long-range fire to bear, utilizing radio forward observers and even dispersed artillery units. They began test, uh, testing this at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Gee, something good came out of Oklahoma. All right, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And so the American artillery tactics were that, gee, if one man, a PFC, had a radio and he could get back to a FDC, Fire Direction Control Center. Why? Not just one gun. You might bring 10 battalions, that'd be 180 guns, to bear on the target if it was judged worthwhile by the colonel controlling the Fire Direction Control Center, the Divarty, uh, Divarty commander, or at least his staff. And it, the this, these artillery tactics reflect actually some things that were going on when the Germans taking the British lead on what becomes Blitzkrieg, where they're using the radio to control uh, motorized and mechanized forces and aircraft. That's what they pull in 1939 and 1940. But the United States Army artillery is developing this as a way to maneuver fires. Get the concept there. I, I've got an observer over here who is, I'll just use kilometers, 
20 kilometers away. And suddenly I pound that with 60 guns. And then in the other direction, he's 60 kilometers from that other target because of where I've got my battalions and batteries, this one's over uh, to the, uh, that one's to the east, this is to the west. Suddenly, within five minutes, I can shift those guns and bring that fire to bear. The term time on target apparently doesn't uh, come into being until 1943, but time on target was something that these uh, American artillery officers experimented with, which was a tactic where you could have a very tight firing order so that all of the rounds arrive on the target, no matter how far the guns are from the target, arrive on the target at the same time so you get not only mass fires but even a seismic effect. This was thought up by, again, some army captains and majors in the 20s and 30s, and they developed firing tables for it. It gave the United States forces an immense advantage when applied both in the Pacific, but particularly in, in Europe, North Africa and Europe. Uh, and uh, the British uh, developed, uh, use, uh, began to use the same tactics. And I point out that this rule on this, on this reflects the absolute adaptability, no matter what the weather is, of American artillery. Why does that matter in the bulge? Because if you cut all the bridges, the German units lose half their combat power on the next turn. And, oh, you're dealing with logistics. So I use, it's just one class, and I thought it was a seminar once a week for three hours. But I had them play the game actually during spring break. And then they had to come back and tell me what they did. They had to play some other, I had my students play one other student in the, in the class and then write, write a battle report. But I said, look, the learning exercise here is to see how you can use some of these techniques to simulate historical factors, historical results. And that particular rule is one that if you have to know a great deal about technology, tactics, doctrine, application, and uh, the history of American army artillery in Europe to come up with that rule. But do you see how it played into it? And the thing is, is that I, I, I think every student, and that's, this is a heck of a, a thing to say, that I had, and, I, and, and this, this was a limited seminar, I, uh, to, to 12 students, and most I ever had thir was 13 uh, in, in, in the class, because it was writing heavy. Only 13 weeks, and I required 10 papers in 13 weeks. But to, to play this game, take a look at how you can do it. Now, here's the, here's the trick. You can't predict the future, but if you can predict the past, and I'm picking up on a line that, uh, that Jim Dunnigan has used, uh, predict the past accurately, you might have a tool for thinking about or projecting, which is a word I like, 
what could happen in the future. So that's, uh, I first taught that class in, in 2004, spring of 2004. But it's, uh, I, I use that game, uh, and I use, there were other gaming techniques. I, I make, I'm, I had a lecture where I refer to uh, one of Machiavelli's uh, in the uh, uh, essays in the Prince, where he talks about a uh, a Greek duke named Philip Herman who would walk around his duchy with his lieutenants and say, "If we were on that hill and our enemies were here, what would we do?" And he'd listen to what his Lieutenants would say, and then he'd give his decision, and they'd talk about it. And Philip Herman was wargaming. He didn't know who was going to, you know, that you could think that who may or may not attack him. But what he was doing was going through contingency, contingency plans, but based on a terrain situation on what he thought were likely a likely order of battle, but uh, so that's um, I, I, I meant that's it's not a new concept. It's it's it's, it's not a new concept. And uh, I, 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 if off the top of my head, I, I I forget which chapter it is. I maybe chapter fourteen. And and uh, take a look at it. If I'm wrong, I'm not wrong by long. But it's Philip Herman and Machiavelli. Is, and, and he's he's wargaming, and I use that with my students. I say he's this applies to business as well. And I had several students who would write papers on who were um, business majors as as well as as plan to honors majors write how they saw the utility of this kind of planning techniques applied to business. So it, it, it does work, and uh, by the way, I've done that as a consultant with, a, with some small businesses saying you can use these as ways to not only look at your own business plan, but your own organizational, your own organization, are the ways you can improve, improve it. If they're not, if you think of it solely as wargaming, what you're really doing is system gaming, but you, 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 cannot look at it as a prediction that gets into you know seance and and the like you're looking at uh projections because there's so many things you you can uh, that, that could happen you talk about black swans or uncertainty uh and the, the best plans are those that are adaptable well, and it's, I, sorry, so you were saying, you know, the difference between projection and prediction. And um, so I'm a, I like baseball a lot too. And it's so, I'm definitely a stat head. And so it's so frustrating for me when sometimes people will be talking, they'll be like, oh, see, like they did that shift. And if they hadn't shifted over, the ball wouldn't have gone there. And I'm like, right, okay, that's true. But the numbers say that, you know, I'm making a good projection based on 70% of the time this is going to happen. And I think that's something that's important for students, no matter what age or what subject they're in is, um, well, for math, you know, we talk about learning the importance of estimating. That's a huge thing. But learning the importance of, uh, like you're saying, predicting the past and applying it to the future to try to make educated guesses about what might happen. Well, let, 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 let's talk about baseball just for a second. 
I'm down. I'm always I'm, I'm always down to talk about baseball. is great so funny you bring up big data i um i I, not i won't say wrote a huge paper but i definitely had a a recent assignment in one of my summer classes where we 
um, that was one of the things I did was looked at big data and it was it was really interesting uh, to look at what it can do, but also like like you were saying to to look at what it can't. Austin, I got to tell you, um, I I've I, I've used this phrase before in my podcast, but I feel like the most interested moron in the room when I'm listening to you because I could just sit here and listen to you go. You have so much um, interesting stuff to say, and I I really just enjoy you taking the time to talk about all this stuff everything ranging from the game to the politic aspect of it um it's just been an absolute blast to sit here and listen to you and i know that the people listen i, I gotta put in a word for mike trout too well please do go yeah go right ahead mike, i don't know how you pitched him at mike trout but that's i'm just saying that i, I I'm, that's not throwing something to los angeles Angels fans <laughs> how, do, how do you pitch to mike trout very carefully, is <laughs> what you do. And I, I know I'm playing with three American League players. I, I can come up with a number of guys in the National League uh, uh, the same way I'm, ta- I'm talking about hitters. But it comes down to where that ball is pitched. And if the pitcher puts the ball where the defense, uh, the tendency on this, guess what? The data's good. If he doesn't, uncertainty, watch out. And baseball is such a tight game. One or two runs makes a difference. And, and, and why does this, what is, how does this work in geostrategy? You make a mistake, you can, pay, you can pay big, and it's not baseball. It's, it's, uh, There's a lot more on the line than a, than a baseball it's an economy, game. It's, it's an economy, it's blood, it's lies. And, and, and I'm not trying to put a downer on it, but that's, that's it, it, I'm going to speak now as an Army plans officer, because that's really what I was. Uh, plans always go wrong. But the better the plan, the better the downrange, which is the, 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 the lingo for it, chance you've got. Uh, and, and planning's a very serious, very serious business. And the, the best planners use wargaming techniques all the time, and always have. I'm talking about it from a military perspective, and I, I think that applies to and, and good business plans as well. Austin, thank you again so much for taking time. And uh, I, 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 Phil, I'm glad that I'm glad to do it. I hope this didn't seem, you know, too far out for folks. So. I don't know, man. I think people are... Look, I'm not trying to shoot sunshine at you, but I just... I think there's just so many interesting things we talked about. I think this game... I'll tell you this. This game really opened my eyes to the political aspect of wargaming. It's just something I had never really thought about before, man. And I tell you, I, I really... I only put fingers on counters a couple of times during the game. Once at the beginning and once at the end. And the rest, I was sitting there rolling on the political chart... And I loved it. I really, I felt like I learned a lot, and I really just enjoyed taking that look at it. So, uh, thank you for what you did with that game. And again, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. It, it's just been an absolute blast to sit here and listen to you, man. I, I enjoyed it, Phil. Uh, you take care. Thanks for inviting me. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, listening to Austin as much as I did. I, this guy's knowledge base is incredible. As soon as he opens his mouth, uh, you know that he's just got something to say about. All of these subjects, and it's not just someone spouting off. I mean, this guy's done the research. He's a smart cat, and uh, 
I know I learned a lot, both from playing the game, from listening to him, uh, and, and from our conversations. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you are following the blog, I'm going to be posting, hopefully in the next couple of days, I did finish, as I mentioned in the podcast, uh, Arabian Nightmare, my playthrough. It went to turn seven. Uh, before it uh, sort of fell apart, but I'm going to be posting that in the next few days. And then I'll probably take a break from the Gulf War just because I've been on it a lot. And there's a couple of other games I want to look at, but I'm going to do one non-Gulf War game. But then, like I sort of mentioned before, we're going to stick with that theme, Gulf War, Desert Storm, for a couple of months. So we'll have a little break, and then I'm going to jump right back into the Gulf War. I haven't decided exactly what game I want to play next, what game I want to talk about. But uh, I have a few options, and if you'll go and look at my pickups posts on the pot that I put on the blog, uh, you'll sort of see the things I've been stockpiling. And so that'll sort of give you a look at the options that I'm considering. And if there's one that you want me to try, one that you really want to see, you know, feel free to reach out. All right, thank you guys so much for listening, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, talk to you guys again in about a month.